Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 92 of Suncast. It's such an elegant product. And that's what solar is today. It's this match of elegant technology with construction. The tension between those two things is sort of the bread and butter for where we're at today and sort of the the bread and butter for our business model, which is helping match and mate and integrate the elegant solutions of solar energy with cost-effective construction and design. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey, what's up, solar warrior? Welcome back. This is episode 92 of Suncast. I am your host, Nico Johnson. If you're a regular listener, I'm honored to have you back. You already know that every week, Suncast provides tomorrow's clean tech leaders with insight and ammunition to carry you through your daily battles. Thanks for tuning in and get ready for your weekly mental tune-up. Are you a new listener? I'm equally grateful to have you with us. And I encourage you to check out some of the other amazing interviews with solar leaders like Jigger Shaw, Dan Sugar, Ed Theo, Stephen Lacey, the list goes on. Speaking of checking out episodes, did you get a chance to listen to the latest Tactical Tuesday last week, number 91 with DNV GL's Tristan Arian Lorico? It's a fantastic overview of the ways that you can be much more strategic in your solar panel procurement process. The Tactical Tuesdays are designed to be short enough to ride along with you on your next commute. So do check those out. Hey, I promised a couple of episodes ago an interview with Frederick Larson, but our schedules and some health issues have prevented that recording, which frankly is why we did not actually release a long-form episode last week. Hopefully you got a chance in the absence to catch up on your Suncast backlog. <laughs> like episode number 86 where I invited you to join the Suncast tribe. If you believe in the value of what Suncast is bringing to the world, would you please check out that episode? Then head over to mysuncast.com and click on the Become a Member button where you can learn more. A huge, huge thank you to a faithful Suncast partner, Alliant Energy, the innovative new fully ballasted solar tracker that is at home in the harshest environments, helping developers reduce project risk, increase yield, and keep solar assets clean and productive. And here in the U.S., using almost half the steel of many competitors. And they're still able to compete on price. (laughs) To learn more about their ballasted tracker and robotic cleaning solutions, please visit alionenergy.com. And if you'd like an intro, please shoot me an email, nico at mysuncast.com. Today on Suncast, we are spending time with a fellow solar warrior who's been in the trenches since the 90s and has developed a great business helping solar developers hone in on and tighten up their process. Stephen Smith is an entrepreneur 
and solar developer from the San Francisco Bay Area who had the good fortune of being able to walk to work back in the early 2000s when he was hired on to a then unknown Berkeley-based solar company, Powerlight. Stephen has since managed gigawatts of solar installations, and he provides his customers and the market with a path to predictable and effective project execution. Does that sound like something that your company could benefit from? Well, stick around and you can hear the two biggest hurdles developers encounter early in a project, risks inherent in solar development and how you can help mitigate them, some strong opinions around project component selection, including which module application Stephen thinks is destined to rule the utility solar market, and Stephen's advice on how to become financially successful in solar. Be sure to stick around to the end for a preview of next week's episode. Oh, and before I forget, if you are going to InterSolar North America coming up July 10th, 11th, and 12th, would you please consider reaching out? I'll be hosting a networking drinks event in San Francisco for the Solar Tribe, along with my friends at Green Power Conferences. If you are working in Latin America and or you are curious about what's going on down there, this will be a not-to-miss event of the movers and shakers and action takers that are making projects happen in Latin America. If you're not already signed up for my mailing list, that is the best way for you to know early and get signed up for this event. So head over to mysuncast.com and jump on the mailing list already. All right, Solar Warrior, thanks again for setting aside this time in your day. Please enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with my friend Stephen Smith. Okay, today on Suncast, we've got an industry veteran, Mr. Stephen Smith, who has been around the block a few times, not the least of which was when he got into the industry with a little company known as Powerlight and uh, has designed multi-gigawatts, managed multi-gigawatts of projects throughout the history of his career and currently runs a company called Solvita. Solvita has two different businesses, the Energy Group, which is consulting since 2009, and the Design and Engineering side, which was spun out of Solvita Energy Group in 2014 and is active in designing projects in the U.S. as well as in other locations. We're going to have a great conversation today with Stephen about uh, some of the history of his development, some of the things he's identified in the marketplace that inform how Solvita has been set up as a consulting and design firm trying to solve problems in the solar industry. And fun fact, Solvita Energy Group founded the first PVCIST training class in the U.S. and conducts trainings every year in San Francisco, as well as personalized PVCIST trainings for clients around the world. So with that, welcome to Suncast, Stephen Smith. Thanks, Nico. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. It's been a long time coming. We've known each other for years, but haven't had a chance to really connect yet for Suncast. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And man, you just bring such a wealth of knowledge and information that I know the solar tribe known as Suncast Solar Warriors are going to really benefit from. I remember when we first met, not sure if you remember this, but you were speaking on a panel with one of my previous bosses, Stephen Kelly, at actually at SPI in, I want to say Long Beach. And I remember standing back and watching your presentation thinking, good Lord, this guy 
<laughs> has done a ton of projects. Do you remember that? I do. I think that was the first time I spoke at SPI. And so I hold it near and dear to my heart for sure. I, I, I remember it well. It's so funny how these types of interactions can make an impression on someone. I mean, at that time, I must have been 30, 31 years old. I was really, you know, really young in my, in my career in the solar industry, but it made an impact on me. And I remember that, that day thinking, I have a lot of respect for this guy. So would you tell me a little bit, Stephen, about some of the early days? You were notably one of the early guys in to Powerlight on Dan's team, actually executing projects. And you guys did more than execute projects here in the U.S. You guys took it international. Can you tell me, though, about your first exposure to the solar industry and how you knew that that's where you wanted to spend time in your career? Yeah, I had some great teachers at Humboldt State University in the mid-90s. I was bouncing around trying to find exactly what I wanted to get into and took a class called Renewable Energy Technology. Just found a tremendous passion for renewables and solar specifically. It just seemed like such a no-brainer to be a decentralized power source, not reliant on the grid, not reliant on Big Brother to sort of take care of needs and such as power. Yeah, it just really aligned with my personal desire to, of course, have a positive influence on the world and at that time, I didn't know I was going to have kids, but lead it, lead for my kids and show, you know, what we can do as a people and our resourcefulness. When I got out, I bounced around to a couple of residential companies and did some small residential installs, including one of which was doing some passive trackers on a big field up in Sonoma. And I remember lying in a cow field on my back with a set of SolarX solar modules on top of sort of like a, a little stand. And I was putting diodes in the bottom of the modules. I kept dropping the diodes in the cow field and it took us like, I don't know, three days to wire up like 30 modules. And I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this, right? There's, and, and from day one, you know, it's always been about innovating. It's always been about finding a better way to install a faster way, better way to share information, make things transparent and build an industry. When I stuck my head up after that residential job. I went traveling around the world for a bit and came back. And I saw one of my friends had started at Powerlight and said, hey, you should come in. This, this company's putting some solar panels on a hotel in Hawaii. And they're led by a couple of really en enigmatic dudes and you should come on in. And so um, actually the, the company office on Ashby and San Pablo literally was about 250 yards from my house. Wow. So I walked down the street, I interviewed with Dan and Tom and, you know, they said, Oh, it sounds pretty good. You know, contact us. Maybe if we think we get something going for you January 1st, 2001. I said, great, I'll talk to you then. And I went home and I got a call three days later and they said, Hey, can you come in tomorrow? <laughs> and so ah. randomly enough, I started my first day at Powerlight November 7th, 2000, which was George Bush's election day. So our first day in the office was, you know, sort of, following uh, the election of, of ah. George Bush. <laughs> oh, wow. That is an interesting milestone, right? <laughs> it's a weird one to think about. It was a really exciting time. I mean, I'm assuming it was like 99, 2000 that you were doing that project out in the Cowfield you mentioned. Was that Zoneworks uh, tracker? It was series? Zoneworks. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah was, I did, one of my first projects was also a Zoneworks passive trackers. That's so fun. And I didn't realize that SolarX, actually, their modules were still around by the end of the 90s. I thought that they had been absorbed by then and, and changed the name. That's really cool. And so we were putting diodes in the back because we wanted to wire them up as 48-volt modules. I want to ask more about that specifically. Because I wrote a note, <laughs> putting diodes in the bottom of the modules. Who does that? Like, I, Tell me a bit about, I mean, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but what's this about putting diodes in modules? Is this a common practice in the past? Yeah, I think we were trying to match the voltage out of the module to the inverters that we had and we either had 24 volt modules and we were trying to make 48 or we had 24 and we wanted to make 12. The bottom line was I was literally 
learned how to put diodes in and I lost probably more than half of them by dropping them in the cow field. And oh, wow. We had a crane come out there and, and we put up about 15 Zoneworks trackers out in, in the uh, Occidental area. It was a really cool job, but it was probably pretty expensive. They've been installed on, on hundreds, probably thousands of farms across the U.S. and the world now. It's such an elegant product. And that's what solar is today. It's this match of elegant technology with construction. The tension between those two things is sort of the bread and butter for where we're at today and sort of the the bread and butter for our business model, which is helping match and mate and integrate the elegant solutions of solar energy with cost-effective construction and design. I think that is fantastic. And I certainly want to dig into what you're referring to, which is basically the heart and soul of Solvita. Solvita has gone through a couple of iterations, started in 2009 when you decided to start your own business. But I actually want to start about there, not necessarily on what you guys execute on today, but you know, you started this business in 2009. What was the bug that got into you to want to be an entrepreneur? You had a nice stable position at a good company. I presume you didn't need to start your own business. Tell me about your entrepreneurial journey a bit and, and why start Solvita and what you saw as the opportunity. Well, I'll qualify that I was with SunPower slash PowerLite and I worked on carport tracker and rooftop projects for them. And in 2007, the industry was really hot. I was getting calls from headhunters all over the place. Hey, you know, this great position, this technology company really needs somebody who's installed projects. You know, I took the bait. I jumped away from SunPower and leveraged the experience I had to run projects for two different startups, SoulFocus and Greenbolts. And I was just sort of obsessed with the idea of like, 40% 40% DC efficiency, right? I was obsessed yeah. with the idea that you could get so much more energy out of a smaller resource. And right. both of those companies had great aspirations and really enigmatic and determined folks, but none of them saw the coming precipice of the, of the polysilicon market. And so, you know, within a heartbeat, both of those companies were obsolete. So much so that as the director of projects at Greenvolts, their technology sort of started to go through its sort of iterations of failing and sort of revamping. And they said, you know, I don't think we need a director of projects anymore. So I, I got my first and only pink slip of my career. You know, I said, I've learned a lot in this industry. I have just come out of this sort of engineering and product management experience after a lot of project experience. And I said, you know, there's probably other entities out there that could use and would want to leverage the, the background experience that I have. And so, um, you know, I started consulting in, in 2009 to a couple of startup companies that were sort of still in the game. Started working with a couple of EPCs that were trying to get into the solar space. Henkels and McCoy is a big national electrical contractor. In 2009, uh, I helped them win a 50 megawatt EPC project for First Solar. It was uh, the Copper Mountain 2 project in Boulder City. And I just found things to be really exciting. I was doing a lot of different types of projects. And, you know, it was a chance for me to sort of talk about what I had learned from the bottoms up at, at Powerlight and from subcontractors and really talented folks that I was surrounded with there. I just really enjoyed it and sort of catapulted into this position where I said, you know, one of the things I noticed about the, the solar industry is, and that is still so true today, is just the ebb and flow. Whether it's a policy thing or whether it's you're in a certain market that ebbs and flows or whether it's like a federal policy thing, whether it's something that's happening internationally. I remember when the Japan F-FIT came into being and all of a sudden they were like, oh, no modules for the United States. <laughs> yeah, I felt like the opportunity to sort of be a projects department in a box and leverage myself and my colleagues that I had built up over time 
to provide really high value services to clients on a project basis. And then when the project's over, they kick me to the curb. I walk away. They don't have the overhead of sort of me and my team. um, And I go on to the next project and sort of found that that sort of being the glue for companies when they needed it was a way that I could really leverage my experience and our skill sets. You know, there's some bumps and bruises along the way. I had seen in your LinkedIn, certainly that you have been at Soul Focus and Greenvolt's two companies that were on the bleeding edge of technology innovation. What tools do you feel like you gleaned from PowerLight and Soul Focus and Greenvolt's, both the successes and failures that have now helped you as an entrepreneur grow your business? At PowerLight, I learned how to construct solar projects of all types and sizes. And I started on rooftops because that's what we were selling. And then we started selling carports and then we started selling ground mounts. And within all of those contexts, my job in those early stages was to turn on as many inverters as I could turn on as fast as I could turn them on. And to do that, I had to hire really strong and knowledgeable subcontractors. And for civil roof related stuff, mechanical construction. And I just learned as much as I could from them. This is the kind of rebar that goes into a pad. Hmm. Um, here's why you want a square torque tube in, instead of a round and all, all the bits and pieces. So I learned this sort of technical background from them. When I went into a product related environment, it was a little bit of a transition and a challenge because they weren't interested in turning on you know, millions, well, they were, but ultimately, but what they really wanted in the beginning was to just prove a concept. Mm-hmm. So we need to prove that this module works in this setting, or we need to prove that this carousel system, for anybody who remembers Greenvolt's carousel early mm-hmm. system, we need to prove that we can put these out in a cow field and that they're going to operate. So it was a much different environment where you like proof of concepts and iterating on designs. And what I was able to bring to that was a lot of real world experience to say, guys, we can iterate, but at some point we can't iterate in a Petri dish. We got to iterate in the field to really know how this is going to work. We need to hire contractors to come in and be able to put our systems together and then give us feedback on the lessons learned. So it was an interesting time to where I really started to understand sort of VC finance, how that played into the equation, product engineering, and sort of how to develop a product. When the time came for me to go out on my own, you know, I had this sort of diversity of experience where I had could understand the perspective of folks trying to sell widgets into the market and also understand the perspective of folks taking those widgets and trying to integrate them into systems. And I found that to be really valuable because there's a lot of ego in solar. Yeah, there's a lot of ego in VC, as we all know. There's a lot of ego in solar. Piece about it that like is very Cro-Magnon that like, you know, we're utilizing the sun and we're trying to change the world and make the world a better place. And so it's not like, bad ego. It's just that people get really, really passionate about stuff. And when you're sitting at a table with all stakeholders, you need to be able to respect the permit agency. You need to be able to respect the interconnection authority. You need to be able to respect the contractors, the products, the product folks, the developers. And at the same time, you need to be able to advocate for whoever you are representing at the table. And I think that sort of breadth of experience and that sort of depth of experience that I had really aided in that regard. Yeah, I would agree that having gone through similar experiences, both on the project and product development side, it gives you perspective on how to, well, it gives you a filter that you're more easily able to help your clients with. But becoming an entrepreneur uh, has its own set of challenges. It's never an easy road. I'd love to hear from your perspective, some of the things that were easier than you thought they would be and, and similar if there was something that just turned out to be a really hard corner to turn that you never expected. One of the easy things was, 
the solar industry is very transitional and being an emerging technology, there's companies that come and go all the time. And so doing a really good job for a client that would then take knowledge of your company, my, our company, and then go to a next business and say, oh yeah, I know these guys at Solvita. Yeah, they can, they, they really understand LCOE and single axis versus dual axis trackers or whatever it might be. That sort of doing what I was passionate about, which is building elegant and well predictable solar systems. I mean, my ultimate goal is for everybody who comes to the table for a deal, for them to walk away and tell somebody else it was what we thought it was going to be. It was Mm -hmm. on time, it was on budget, and it's working. That's like my personal desire. And whatever we can do to build rapport and confidence in our clients, that's like coming from like inside of me. And so being able to leverage that was something I never thought, I I just didn't think that that was going to be as easy as it was. Some of the hard things were like trying to price services to folks on like a values basis, right? Versus like a dollars per hour basis and like have that conversation, right? You tell somebody, yeah, I charge $150 an hour and they're like, well, that's $350,000 a year <laughs> like or some number like that. And you're like, hey, I've been on the phone with you for four hours <laughs> trying to close this deal <laughs> and we're not getting paid, right? It's like getting people to understand like the value of an offering, you know, that I could spend two hours with a drawing set and probably save the, on a five megawatt project and save the client, you know, more than a half million dollars based on EPC costs by just efficient. And then being able to charge for that effectively and make a living that way. It was, right. it was a bit of a challenge. I hear you. Actually, well, I want to drill down on both of those. One of the things that I always love to understand better, you know, one of the things that just makes your heart sing is when you see a deal, like you said, come in on time, under budget or on budget. Can you give me an example though of, we all run into this and sometimes you are called in to be the savior. Can you give me an example of a time where you helped a client out where a project wasn't on time or on budget? In the consulting days, there was a lot of opportunity in the United States for companies to bring products to market. So you got companies like Sony and Panasonic and sort of these international companies, Hyundai, Honda, you know, not necessarily the car, but the engine, you know, wanting to break into the market and basically not understanding, for example, that what's really relevant in Japan is not so relevant in the United States. Mm. And so I stepped in, we stepped in on a, on a project with Panasonic, which is, I think, the most complicated and complex industrial company in the entire planet. They've got like 350 sub companies and they were like, we want to do this in the United States, but they're like, well, we don't know how to do it and we don't have the parts. I'm like, you've got this other division that does that exact thing. Oh yeah, but that's not <laughs> our division. But, you know, they wanted to make this big multi-million dollar investment in the market for a wireless bolt-on monitoring system. So you could basically go to an existing system and bolt this monitoring system, string wireless monitoring system on, know what the system is, is operating, know how it's producing. It seems like a really good idea. And, you know, it is a great idea in Japan because Japan has no tax incentives and you're getting 45 cents a kilowatt hour for your system to produce. They didn't understand that in the United States, 60 to 65% of the value return into the investment is based on the capacity and not necessarily the performance of the system. So they were about to like make a pretty big investment to the market. And so we went out to the market and said, is this interesting to you? And really the market came back to us, whether it was residential installers or O&M company. They said, yeah, it's kind of a cool widget, but our clients aren't asking for that because we don't roll trucks when their single string goes down. So right. it's sort of like getting in there and like really making sure that on the consulting level that folks understand the market and that they understand what they're trying to do. Because like I said, there's a lot of ego. And when you're sort of 
designing and engineering in a silo, it can be troublesome for sure. That's a great example of, of being able to step in and really provide a pivot point for a client instead of saving a project or delivering a project on time, you're actually helping save them hundreds of thousands, probably millions of dollars and lost time and lost revenue. We could probably recount dozens of stories. You've worked on so many early projects that were ahead of their time. I wonder though, as you began to think about your pivot into Solvita or perhaps maybe a a few years into it, do any particular moments in time stand out as points of clarity or perspective that have really carried you through to today? We were brought into a 20 megawatt ground mounted project in Eastern Maryland as the engineer of record, took over a design from from a civil engineering firm that didn't understand trackers and um, had designed the system in, in what were considered fairly loose soils, basically designed a foundation was completely, it was going to blow the, the budget of the project. The project probably wasn't going to move forward. But they didn't really understand the nuances of the of the tracker design. They didn't understand how the tracker is designed to sort of route wind loads down into the soil appropriately. And they also didn't know that the tracker had gone through significant wind tunnel tests that could be used in lieu of certain design parameters mm-hmm. to actually create a, a more effective design. And so once we got involved with the project, we looked at the calculations that they had put together, which were totally code compliant, but like really filled with safety factor, sort of unknown where they were really covering their, you know, what's. And so mm-hmm. we basically took that design and uh, went back to the tracker company and said, look, let's take these forces that you have published from your wind tunnel tests and we'll go, we'll roll those into the design. And actually, we cut about four feet of steel off of each foundation. And then we were able to sort of justify that with the permit agency. So it was actually knowing the nuances of the actual structural design of the system itself and knowing how it behaved and sort of in these more nascent markets, it's just really helping those guys design and carve cost out where, you know, at that time it was three or four years ago. So, you know, it was, it was a much larger component of the overall offering. So it's like, it's about just bringing that value to the equation and I think at that same project, we cut the EPC's inverter costs down by two or three inverters because of the way that they had sized the system. So it's just about getting in there and presenting actionable advice within the momentum of the project. I think that's one of the problems with some of these bigger design firms is that they have tremendous resources and they can provide a lot of value, but they don't necessarily understand the momentum of the project. Mm -hmm. And when you don't understand the momentum, you need to actually go back and talk to three or four people to get a decision, push things up a chain. That doesn't work well in this industry. People call Solvita when they have a problem and my cell phone rings. And usually I give them an answer within five to seven minutes. If I don't have the answer myself, I have an action plan how I'm going to get it to them and sort of provide that comfort blanket. What you mean there by momentum is the way that these projects tend to come together doesn't have the buffer to allow for a three, four, five iteration, multi-day phone call series, setting up conference calls, et cetera. Is that kind of what you mean? Yeah. And I also mean that there's like a little bit of analysis paralysis in solar. It used to be much simpler. We didn't have all these independent engineers. We didn't have everybody with a technical representative like we have today. You know, today it's just like this steel cage match of like independent engineers versus independent engineers and everybody puffing up their chests. But back in the day, we just were, we had the utility, we had the permit agency and we had the owner. Now we've got financiers, we've got financiers, the financiers, we've got the tax equity financier, a lot of stakeholders. And I think understanding that 
the complexity of that and being able to sort of help drive towards reasonable approaches in a period of time. That's also sort of in opposition to the business model of a lot of these engineering companies, which is mm-hmm. we need hours. And so if we do analysis, we're going to gain hours and we're going to bill for hours. That's not how we work. And I think that nimbleness and that flexibility as a small but technically expert company is really, really appealing to our client base. You've talked about helping solve and maintain momentum around problems, finding solutions quickly. I wonder, you, you've been developing this filter and this fabric of understanding where there are problems and how you can effectively solve them. What else do you see developers or engineers routinely missing or making false assumptions around? You know, if you, if you put out a PSA that could somehow fix some of these problems in the industry, what would it include? I think it would include really understanding where projects are cited, S-I-T-E-D, and proximity to the grid and getting an understanding of the two biggest unknowns early in a project are where is it going to plug into the grid and what's under the ground. Those are the two showstoppers, really. Most of the other stuff is fairly predictable, even if it's a poor solar resource like a Wisconsin, Michigan, sorry, Wisconsin, Michigan, but it's true. That's all predictable and you can relay that in. But if there's, you know, toxic soils or corrosion concerns under the ground that you don't know about and you push a project down and start investing development capital, that's a bad position to be in. So I think citing projects appropriately is a big one. I also am really having a a bit of a tough time. You talked about trackers earlier. Trackers are the most prolific utility scale ground mount application right now, but trackers are being installed in places that are probably not appropriate for trackers. Places like Minnesota and Montana and parts of Oregon where there's, you know, tremendous snow considerations and weather considerations that I don't necessarily think those developers are not going to hear from the tracker company Mm, that they should install it there. Right. But they need to know the risk. And that's my little bit of my fear as personally is that we're taking a lot more risks as the market expands into these various areas. And I hope that those risks don't come back and bite us as an industry. So I think appropriate technology citing and really understanding what a particular type of environment, climate, location needs for a project is important. I spend a lot of time thinking through this with clients. And one of the things, certainly in Latin America, that folks get wrong all the time. In Spanish, we call it servidumbre, right? It's the, it's the project access, right? It's the rights of way, as we call it in English. It's, folks will ask me, what's the number one thing that'll kill my project? And <laughs> project acquisition is an interesting game. A lot of folks are in the acquisition game right now, and they try to mitigate risk by only buying projects on clean squares of uh, ag land. They do so without, like you said, without as much focus as they probably should on proximity to grid. And yeah, I see projects even in the U.S. with multiple miles of interconnection risk. We'll call it risk because that's what it is. Multiple miles of interconnection uh, requirement. And I fully agree with you. I love the way you couched it, the two biggest unknowns early in a project. Where will it plug in and what's in the ground? We're always going to provide the most independent perspective. And that's, I think, was really valuable to our clients too, is that I'm not going to tell you that a tracker company that's been lowering their costs for two years from 15 cents to 12 cents to nine cents. The only way they're doing that is by pulling material out of their product and by doing things slightly more efficiently. But usually the the former is the case. So you take this like lighter and lighter product, then you're like, okay, well, we're going to put this in Wisconsin. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So it's, we're always going to provide our clients with what I consider the omniscient third party independent perspective on what's appropriate. 
and that's, I think, a breath of fresh air. Yeah, oh, I love that. We're going to move on to a section I call hot or hype, and I will name specific markets. You've been around long enough to, I feel, have at least an opinion on some of these. So you give me your 30 to 60 second response on whether or not you think it's hot or hype. And we'll start with an area that you have been uh, focused on lately. How about DG Energy Storage? Yeah, I think storage in general is hot. I think DG has the opportunity to be hotter, per se, just because of the rapid deployment of DG versus utility scale. I think storage is hot from a commercial perspective. I think storage is getting hot, but isn't mm-hmm. entirely hot from a technical perspective because there's there's still, the industry doesn't know as much as it needs to know. We still don't know what we don't know about storage, I think. And it's a the value stream to be able to say, this is exactly what this type of technology is going to do. And it's going to do it best mm. in this location, this flow battery versus a flywheel. What is the appropriate storage technology for an appropriate value stream? But it yeah. is hot for sure. All right, moving on. Let's look at the area of microgrids and in particular, hot or hype microgrids as a core part of the future of our grid. I think it's a little hype. I think microgrids in communities where there's no grid makes a lot of sense. But even there, it's figuring out how do you do 50,250 watt, you know, sort of stations or, yeah. or, or systems versus a you know, much more robust system where there's not the load, right? And then sort of like mating the transients of certain populations across developing world with, Hey, we just put a microgrid there, but they're like, Oh, well we actually move every four or five years to do this and put a microgrid in. I think it's hot in developing markets. I'm not necessarily sold on microgrids in our market, but I'm willing to learn more Mm -hmm. and willing to be proven uh, that it's moving in a good direction. Hot or hype, the nexus of the renewable industry and the electrification of the automobile industry. I think that's pretty hot. I think we're getting an idea of we've got this cars are a energy storage source. So how do we manifest those? How do we utilize and what can we do? What, what can we do well um, with a car that travels 40 miles a day in a sort of from a suburban to like a office location versus a car that, sits, you know, for X amount of time. And I think we're just sort of figuring it out. I think there's a lot there. I'm fairly confident looking at some of the legislation that's coming out that the policymakers in the United States also believe, but it's emerging of emerging, right? So I I still think we're, you know, 10, 15 years from figuring it out to where it can become commercially viable. All right. Moving along, hot or hype blockchain as it relates to energy. I would have to say hype at this point. I love the transparency and I think it, it actually is, it's bringing up something for me that based on sort of molding on something you said earlier as well, we're shifting very much towards a performance-based value opportunity for solar where, where solar needs to be and where renewables need to be, which is like you get paid for the energy, you get paid for the idea, you don't get paid for putting in a 15-mile transmission line, you don't get paid for capacity, you get paid for performance. And I think that's the truest nature of solar, right? Getting as many kilowatt hours out of a solar panel that you can. And I see blockchain playing a good role in that, in terms of like transparency of energy generation, transparency of payments and all that sort of thing. I think we're a few years away, but what's really exciting about this industry is where are we going to be when there's a 10%, you know, ITC 
and those pieces are not as big of a consideration. I think we're starting to see the industry move in that direction technically already. The push of bifacial modules is really intriguing to me and something we're seeing literally today. In my opinion, that's a direct impact of the low cost of solar modules, but also the forward-looking expectation that I'm going to need to get every kilowatt hour I can get out of this module or this acre of land, and Bifacial might be able to help me do that. I'm glad that you brought that up because that is my final hotter hype question. So we'll move on to that one, and thanks for what I think is a great answer around blockchain and keeping it away from crypto as a, as a separate category. Last question, hot or hype, bifacial modules will be the most common module type on utility projects moving forward. I think in three years that will be the case. I am myself just figuring out now what bifacial means for utility scale optimization. What does it mean in a land constrained location versus a land plenty application? I do believe that the the low cost of standard polysilicon and monosilicon modules is pushing companies to innovate further. And we've got tons of companies now that have a very commoditized multi-crystalline product um, that are all itching to decommoditize their future offerings. And I think uh, Bifacial is a neat way to do that. I think we're also just sort of understanding it now. The industry is in a great place right now. I said for many years, man, it would be great to be making technical decisions based on empirical performance data. And I said that for a long time, and now we are, actually. So we're there again with Bifacial, right? We need performance data. We need the big boys, the big independent engineers to stamp off on performance thresholds. But um, it's coming, and I'm pretty optimistic and pretty bullish on Bifacial for utility-scale applications. Along those lines, I'd love to hear from someone who's been around the industry for a while. What position do you hold, maybe about the industry, maybe about just solar projects that you think is controversial? I think that the position I hold is despite the the pressures of like purchase agreements and being really low, that it's not right to put trackers in places where it's snowy. Um, <laughs> I love it. I mean, that's like, you know, IRR hurdles, forget about those as far as I'm concerned. I'm thinking what's going to happen five years down the line. What's the inherent risk? What's the implicit risk of putting a tracker in a snow-burdened area? Structural failure. Even if the modules are stowed in, you know, the 60-degree angle, not flat? Yeah, just ice, just ice accumulating on the modules and not being able to melt. Basically, trackers are, not only are they designed evenly balanced, right? And so all of a sudden you put a bunch of wind and snow and ice on one side and not the other. I mean, there's just all sorts of variables. And it's kind of like, is the cell phone, is it bad to hold a cell phone to your ear? We all know it is, right? Mm -hmm. But the commercial push of cell phones is why we all hold one to our ear, right? We're 20 years from now, we'll probably know a lot more. I think the same thing's true with solar. It's like, is it great to put a tracker in? Yeah, you can do it. But I don't know if it's the best thing for the industry. And I also feel like, you know, do we have a responsibility as an industry to be putting out systems that we know can be upgraded in five years to be more mm. efficient and more technically advanced. Right. One thing I was talking about with somebody yesterday was this notion that, yeah, it's great that we're deploying so much solar, but if we spent more time on R&D and pushing up the capacity factors of what we produce to maybe the low 20s and 25, 30%, how do we do that? New modules, technology, blah, blah, blah. If we spent more money doing that than just deploying it, is that a better way to fight climate change? Because then what we put out in five years, let's say from 2025 to 2035, we're putting out 28% capacity factor systems just as a number, right? Versus all of the 15 and 16% capacity factors we're putting out now, is that a better decision Mm. overall? It's all about the long game. 
really, you know, I want my kids to be excited about solar. I want solar to be ubiquitous and they're experienced. And I don't want it to be something that's like flash in the pan. And I don't know that we as industry are fully thinking about that right now. Mm. I appreciate that introspection. Well, if we move along as we round third base here to round out this conversation, Stephen, I'd love to hear from you a little bit about lessons learned and some of the ways that you sharpen the saw for yourself. But the first point, what are some of the key lessons or takeaways you've gleaned in your career and that you pass along to others, perhaps that you mentor, that come from the most important mentors in your life and career? Just really believing in your passion and yourself. And I know that sounds kind of cliche, but since I've been working for myself and sort of running my own companies for 10 years, a lot of times when folks get out of a particular position at a corporate job in solar, they call me and I'm like, oh, I know why this person's calling. They're like, yeah, I'm thinking about going on my own. I want to do my own thing. And I have this idea and sort of to fill this gap that's needed. I'd say run with those ideas. Some of the most important products and value offerings in this industry came from that place. And that's sort of a cliche thing. I mean, Paul Grana from Helioscope, that's how Helioscope came to be. I was working with him. He was consulting. We were both consulting at a particular company. He's like, hey, I've got this idea. Yeah. EVSYST is horrible. I want to do something that's better and this <laughs> and that. And, da, da, da. And, and look where Helioscope is today. Look how important it is. Yeah, um, so I'd nice. say, you know, really don't, don't discount what you can bring to the market. And in this emerging technology field, there's just tremendous opportunity all over the place. You know, it can get a little bit crazy, such as like solar lead generation, right? Because everybody's like, oh, lead generation, soft costs. <laughs> right. And that's led to this backlash where I get like 15 calls from foreign countries on a regular basis, go solar some from somebody who unfortunately can't even convey the value proposition to me. But, you know, be prudent in your approach, but know that there is so much opportunity from an entrepreneurial level to provide value to this industry. And I believe that believing in it is the most important thing. The second thing is that value will bring money and providing value and building a reputation is the best thing you can do to become financially successful in this industry. Focusing on an idea that is, you know, that you just want to sell upstream into some, you know, sort of soulless VC approach every now and then it'll pay off. But most of the folks I've seen that have tried that it's been unsuccessful. Sage advice. I really appreciate that. Steven, I believe that leaders are readers. I am certain that if I got a chance to look on your nightstand, I'd find some interesting reads. So I'd love to hear, is there a particular book that has influenced the most your personal approach to the world, your leadership style, or is there a book that you've given away the most and why? Yeah, I think Good to Great is a wonderful book on how to take small business ideas and manifest them. Most of the other stuff I read is more sort of in the environmental stewardship sort of area. I mean, I think like classics like Rachel Carson and stuff like that's always really good to read. And then the, this new book or fairly new book called The Power of Habit, I also think is a, is a really strong book. By Charles Duhigg. Yeah, there's such, such great stories in there of like how to create corporate stewardship and really provide like a bellwether, like a goal that an organization can rally around. Speaking of forming those goals, I believe that also many leaders arrive where they are because of consistent habits. What consistent habit or practice in your life has had the greatest impact on your work? I say just being incredibly diligent in communication has been really, really helpful for me. How does that manifest itself? I, for better or for worse, I respond to emails pretty much like 
within a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. I know that my clients are stressed out and I know that my clients are managing multiple things. And so for me personally, when my clients like, Hey, just checking in that this is going to happen in this way, I always send back, yep, that's what I'm thinking too. I've noticed and found that there are a lot of people getting pulled in a lot of different directions and just being vigilant about communication and transparent about communication has been really helpful for me. Such wise advice. I really appreciate that. Well, as we wrap up, I'd love to have folks understand how they could get in touch with you. I'll link to your LinkedIn, but if you want to share Twitter or email or website or anything like that, now's a chance. Yeah, www.solvitadesign.com and www.solvitaenergy.com. Put uh, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, at Solvita Design or Solvita Energy, and you'll come right up to me and be happy to uh, interface with anyone. And I'm also Twitter, Solvita Energy on Twitter as well. It's a really exciting time. We're expanding as an industry. Folks are coming in that don't necessarily know what they're selling or mm -hmm. what they're building and you know whatever we can do to, to help us continue to build a sustainable industry. I'm all in. Very cool. Well, let's end today with how we always do, Stephen, a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? 28 cent modules in Q4 of 2018. Whoa, <laughs> that is an awesome prediction. I love that one. Uh, wow. Well, if that or uh, any of these other uh, conversations that we've had uh, bear fruit, we will certainly be talking about it here on Suncast with the rest of our tribe of solar warriors. Stephen, you truly are an inspiration in the industry and a pioneer and a solar warrior. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thank you, Nico. And thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for parlaying your previous career into such a positive light for what we're trying to do here in the industry. I really, really appreciate the time. This is 2009, 10, 11, those early years of the solar industry coming out of the crash of 08, the corporate real estate market. So one of our bankers used to joke, I don't want to be the guy that's known to put the solar panels on a circuit city before they went bankrupt. Well, thanks for checking out this episode, Solar Warriors. If you're curious about what's new in solar plus storage, you won't want to miss that episode that we just previewed for you coming up next week with Nicola Powers, CEO, JW Postal. Hope to see you then. Hey, Tribe, while I still have your attention, I'd like to say thank you again. The fact that you're still listening means you really enjoy the work that we're bringing to life. If that's true, won't you consider becoming a member of the Suncast Energy Tribe? There are two ways you can do that, and they're both outlined on the website at mysuncast.com forward slash member, as well as in episode 86 of Suncast, in case you didn't yet have a chance to listen. A special shout out to Energy Tribe members Scott Muller and Natalia Flores, who have been constant supporters and are true solar warriors. You can join them at mysuncast.com forward slash member. And I look forward to formally welcoming you into the tribe as well, my friend. And thanks again for showing up. It's half the battle.